You're listening to Music Tectonics. If you hear the sound of the waves, you're listening to Music Tectonics at Meetum. I'm at La Plage Berrière, the beach just down from the Palais where Meetum is held here in Cannes in France. And I'm bringing you a special episode of Music Tectonics. Mark Mulligan from Media Research, one of my music technology heroes, uh, did the opening keynote this morning and I was able to record it and I'm presenting to you here in full for your listening enjoyment. This will blow you away. Good morning, everyone. <coughs> my name's Mark Mulligan, um, and I'm here to kick off today's streaming uh, panel and session. What you're going to hear throughout today is uh, a lot of deep diving into what's making streaming tick. And nowadays, because streaming is such a big part of the market, this is more a case of what's making the music industry tick. I'm going to open talking about the rise of new streaming markets. And I'm also going to contextualize it in some of the big macro trends which are shaping streaming and that's in the ways that straight streaming is shaping the music business. So first of all, <coughs> who am I? Music, media and tech analyst um, have been in this role at various different companies for, for way too long now. In fact, my first time at Medem was 19 years ago, um, back in the days when I had hair. And the, uh, everybody will see around their, their necks, Napster is one of the sponsors. 20 years ago, 19 years ago, Napster was a company that most of the people in the room was busy suing. So the world has changed quite a bit. Um, and back then we were talking about internet music. Um, and obviously the world is coming a long way. So this is me, Disco Stew. Uh, there's a serious point to this. So you're looking, here he is looking at disco sales. It's going to carry on and sort of conquer the world forever. And of course, immediately after disco sales slowed and then disappeared and there's sort of just one chapter in the history of music. There's a real danger about looking at the future and thinking it's just going to be a bigger, brighter, shinier version of today. So one of the things I'm going to try to do in today's presentation is give you some ingredients for you to help shape your thinking about what's going to be coming next. And I think it's a really important time to think about what's coming next because Back a year before I was first here at Medem, back in 1999, before the music industry started its long, slow, painful decline, things looked pretty good. That things looked amazing. Revenue was just growing and growing. Record labels had more money than they knew what to do with. And there was just one format with no successor on the horizon. Fast forward 20 years, things are remarkably similar. We've got revenue growing at a really great rate. We've got more money getting invested in artists and songwriters and advances and marketing. Streaming is growing and growing, but there is just the one game in town. Every road leads to streaming. And yet, sure, streaming isn't a format in the old ways. It's a business model, but it's still only one business model. And a business model that in many ways is so constraining that we really only have one set of experiences in the marketplace. So this is a really good time to think about what might come next to drive the next phase of growth in streaming. 
So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk first of all about some big macro trends, then deep dive into emerging markets, then talk a bit about why we should be looking towards some of the Asian services to get a sense of maybe what comes next, and then a few concluding thoughts to leave you with. Here are 10 big trends that are going to reshape the music industry. Some of these are already happening, some of them are only getting going, but they're all equally important. And you could have 20 or 30, but here are 10 of the ones which I, I think are the most important to know about. So streaming's eating radio. What streaming first did was compete with retail, it competed mainly with the iTunes Music Store, but essentially converted people who used to spend a lot of money, maybe 20, 30, 40 euros a month, and turned them into 9.99 customers. For a while, that caused sales to decline, but now that there are enough people spending 9.99, the average spend is so high that growth is coming back. But it's also turning a lot of those people into radio listeners. Through curation, through programming, through playlists, it's making people lean back. And free streaming is also competing with radio. So we're seeing radio audiences declining really sharply, particularly younger music fans. On average, just 39% of 16 to 19 year olds listen to music on the radio. That compares to 59% that watch music videos on YouTube. So for teenagers, YouTube has replaced radio. And now with podcasts coming into the mix, we're going to have a demographic pincer movement, if you like, where podcasts are going to compete for the older radio listeners, and we've got Spotify, who's putting podcasts absolutely as part of streaming. Apple, if anybody saw the announcement last night, has <coughs> killed off iTunes and launched three new apps, Apple Music, Podcasts, and Apple TV. So Apple is saying, actually, podcasts are something really different, and maybe Apple is looking at how it can take on radio in a very distinct way via a dedicated podcast service. Streaming economics, I'll talk about this in a bit more, but it's one of those recurring themes. Is the streaming business model sustainable? Catalogue pressure, this matters perhaps more than you think. Catalogue, particularly for larger record labels, is the investment fund for bringing new artists to market. Given that so many new artists don't make it, that they are loss makers for, for the record labels, they need to have this big pool of catalogue revenue in order to drive that investment. But, catalogue's changing. In the old world, it used to be every five or 10 years, release a new greatest hit, and people would go out and spend 15 euros and get 20 songs which I only wanted to listen to five of. Now, really big streaming, really big heritage acts are often only five or six songs on streaming. So the economics there are changing dramatically. Labels as a service, I'll talk in more detail. Value chain disruption is one of those things which you'll hear spoken about today and throughout the conference. It's will companies like Spotify start competing with record labels? How will they move along the value chain? These things are not going to go away. These are going to be a fundamental characteristic of how streaming as a business model evolves. Tech major bundling. At the moment, this is mainly Amazon, with the Amazon Prime essentially being like a TV license. You know, you pay one fee and you get access to all of these things free. That's great as a consumer proposition, less good for music because it's essentially relegated to a nice to have. Then we've got global culture. So I think we're still at a, a turning point, if you like, for, for, for music at the moment. Streaming has a choice. It can either globalize culture and spread diversity across the globe, 
or it can homogenize it and make everybody listen to the same Anglo-centric Anglo repertoire. Um, what we have at the moment is in, in, in India, we're beginning to see a real rise, and that will accelerate. In Latin America, I've come on to it a little bit, we've seen a real dominance of Latin American artists. Because these markets are so big, they can create numbers that look global, but aren't actually global. You know, so you can see them dominating the Spotify Top 100, Global 100. That doesn't necessarily mean they're global apps. So maybe you're seeing the first signs of a real diversification of the global marketplace. For sake of time, I'm going to skip some of these because I'll come on to them in a couple of slides. So first of all, a very quick deep dive into streaming economics. What we're looking at here is all of the key streaming services across the globe, the number of subscribers, and the blue ones are those which are wholly independent, which don't have a parent company that has a different objective or a different set of revenues it's trying to achieve. So it's a really clear picture. When we're talking about is streaming commercially sustainable, really what we're saying is Spotify commercially sustainable? Spotify is the only streaming service of scale that has to worry about making music wash its own face. And that has really major implications because at the moment, Spotify is doing an amazing job. For two years solid, every quarter, it has maintained its market share, give or take a percentage point or two. So however much the rest of the competition has grown, they haven't been able to make up market, take market share away from Spotify, even though they've got nearer in subscriber numbers. And when we think about who are the big players outside Spotify, Amazon, Apple, now Facebook, Google, the tech majors, the tech majors who are using music as a way of driving their core businesses. And so they don't have to worry about music generating a profit. Now at the moment, they're playing good partners, but if Spotify was to disappear out of the market, then the mantra of West Coast tech companies is to bring efficiencies into the supply chain. And what that means is squeezing suppliers, which in music will mean squeezing labels, publishers, and as a result, artists and songwriters. This is some consumer data that we, we have at Media. One of the things we do at Media is we fill big consumer surveys every quarter across lots and lots of different countries. Here we're looking at the key activities that streaming music users do. And what you see is it's a really fragmented set of behaviours. It's not like streaming video, where binge watching is more than two thirds of all streaming video users. We don't have that standout use case yet for streaming music. For all of the talk, about curated playlists, they're still relatively small in adoption. The plus side of this, the positive view, is what streaming has done is it's developed a really diverse set of use cases to meet a diverse set of needs. And the fact that only 10% of consumers do all of these really just illustrates how many different ways there are that people want to engage with programming. And programming is going to be a crucially important thing as we move forward. One of the other dynamics, which isn't a streaming dynamic, but has been empowered and enabled by streaming, is the rise of artist direct or DIY artists. Now there's a democratisation of access to audiences. You can reach global audiences without needing to go down the traditional route. The DIY artist sector <coughs> is growing faster than any other part of the music industry, massively more so than traditional record labels, but it's still really small. It's about 3.5% of 
of all recorded music revenues in 2018, but it's grown fast. It will cap out at some point, probably within the next two to three years. But what we have is massive empowerment for artists. Artists can pick and choose the tools that they want, essentially building their own virtual label. That's all well and good, but it can actually be really confusing for an artist working out where to go. And if you're an early stage artist, you probably can't afford to take all the things that you want. So somebody needs to stitch them together, like a salesforce.com for artists. And at the moment, Spotify is probably the best place to do that, has already acquired some of the companies included in here. I won't do it anytime soon because it can't afford to antagonize the record labels yet, but be absolutely sure they will do it at some stage. What this is, this really should be a mantra for record labels about focusing on what do they bring that a set of software and tools don't bring. The soft skills about nurturing talent, about having the A&R support, about having dedicated marketing teams who know and understand the artist. Really, this is a chance for record labels to say, develop a, an agency-like relationship with their artists to push the importance of the soft skills that can't be replaced simply by having a set of tools and apps. One of the things that I mentioned before is about you know, the potential slowdown in, in streaming revenue. Subscribers will slow more quickly than revenue. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. One is the, the rise of emerging markets, which have lower ARPU. Um, the other is, um, as markets mature, we see more people on full price subscriptions rather than um, promotional ones. Um, we also, just as the market matures, you have more people who've been subscribed throughout all of the year, so the lifetime value in ARPU goes up as well. So there's a lot of factors that means revenue will grow more quickly than subscribers. Um, but there still remains this big thing. What, what are the other things that streaming services don't do? And I remember back in that <coughs> first medium I was at, there's a guy called Gerd Leonard, who was a, who's a futurist, and he had some out there ideas, but he also made a really good call which was he predicted right back then that music was going to become like water. And it has, and it has become like water, but there's maybe the unintended consequences of what music becoming like water is. How many of us go, I love the water that comes out my tap, I really value it, I, you know, I, make, I, I feel connected with the water in my tap. We don't, it's something that we'll miss if it's not there, but it's just a utility. And there's a risk that we've turned music into that by stripping it of a lot of the context and emotion and cultural identity that music used to have. So maybe there's a big opportunity for a new set of experiences to emerge off-platform. Then we move on to what I think is arguably one of the most important dynamics in, in, in music marketing at the moment. <clears throat> and that is in the old world, there was a limited number of ways an artist could find its audience. And that was predominantly radio, TV and print. These were scarce commodities that typically the bigger record labels had more access and influence over. And what you had was essentially like carpet bombing. You'd go to reach everyone to make an artist successful. So the brand reach of the artist would be huge. But actually, carpet bombing is really ineffective. You end up killing lots of civilians in the, in the real world of carpet bombing. And in music marketing, it means you, you're spending a lot of money reaching people who are never really going to be dedicated fans. Now, with the fragmentation of audiences, both across different platforms and through algorithms within platforms and multiplicity of social platforms and all of those things, I mean, that actually, you don't need that approach anymore. And there's the new generation 
not just of labels, but within the bigger traditional labels, marketing tactics, that are focused, instead of trying to build these big global audiences through mass market medium, instead trying to build those audiences bit by bit through niches in different countries. So instead of, for example, saying we need to get 10 million people in France, of which maybe a quarter of a million will be really dedicated fans, it's just find that quarter of a million in France, and then another quarter of a million in Germany, another quarter of a million in, in the UK, and build out your 10 million across the globe. You get a much more valuable, much more engaged, much more passionate 10 million than doing that, that old method. So, a bit on emerging markets. This is where we think at Media, the future streaming revenues are going to be going. Now you'll notice, it says retail revenues. So this is maybe something different than the numbers that you normally see. You see the IFPI numbers, you know, they're talking about the, rec the, the record labels revenues. And of course record labels are the majority of it, but they are just one part. There's also publishers, and the collection societies, and then there's sales tax, and then there's a margin for the streaming services. And actually, the gap between trade revenues and retail revenues is already widening and is going to widen further. The last big change was when Spotify triggered this new set of deals where it got discounts on the amount that it's paying to the record labels in return for reaching certain targets. Although those rates are staying flat now and there's pressure to raise them, long term, they will probably decline. And on top of that, Streaming services are trying to bring more things into the mix, whether that be podcasts or their own artists or video. And these things dilute the amount of spending that the consumers spend that goes into the royalty pot. So in many ways, trade revenues are not a very precise way of measuring the true growth trajectory of music, streaming music anymore. We look across the globe at the streaming markets um, it's very easy just to say emerging markets, and that basically means anyone except <clears throat> North American Europe. In truth, the market has become a lot more sophisticated and developed than that. So what we have is those top-tier markets, those which are very developed, which are very mature, and which are beginning to reach saturation points, where particularly probably in the second half of this year onwards, we'll really start to notice some slowdown in growth. But... On a global basis, there is enough momentum coming from the next tier of markets, which are already well established, Latin America especially, that will sustain growth. The big thing is, what happens after that? You know, where does the next wave of growth come from? You'll notice here I don't have Sub-Saharan Africa as one of those next tiers because we've got so many structural issues in Sub-Saharan Africa, particularly around access to data and affordability of data, that really, that's maybe half a generation away before we see those markets really start to deliver. Latin America, I think, gives us a really strong indicator of what next tier markets can do. What we're looking at here is uh, an analysis of all of the YouTube music videos which have hit one billion or more views. Um, and then looking at those which are Latin America. So across the top, <coughs> we're looking at the cumulative number of views from music videos released in each of that year that have hit a billion. And you can see, for those released in 2017, 30, nearly 31 billion streams. Now, you might say that 2018 looks smaller. That's because these are cumulative, so it will take a couple of years for 2018 to capture. But maybe the most important bit is the blue bar. What that means is, in 2018, of all of the music videos released that year that hit one billion views, 70% of them were from Latin American artists. 
Now there's a whole bunch of reasons which we don't have time to dive into here for why YouTube and Vivo particularly work in Latin America, but it's a real indication of what streaming is enabling because it's monetizing access rather than relying upon people spending is we'll see the rise slowly of a new order in the global music market where markets which never really figured that strongly in the old music market music model will begin to become much more important in revenue terms but it's a slow slow transition what we're here looking at here is streaming revenues by region in 2018 and what they'll look like in 2026 now again i want to emphasize there's a big difference between revenues and subscribers because what we'll see is the subscriber impact of a lot of these markets can be much higher you take the example of india india even though everybody's in a bit of a chase for subscriber numbers in india at the moment it's really not a traditional subscription market for a whole bunch of factors not least of which is the average level of consumer spending what will unlock india is probably very 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 cheap telco bundles and when i say very cheap i mean we're talking about maybe 50 cents to a dollar a year in arpu but will deliver tens and tens of millions of subscribers so measuring the mid-term impact of emerging markets is more going to be about users than it is in revenue but even with that caveat looking here at 2026 versus 2018 the total amount of uh, streaming revenue generated by the markets you can see we're beginning to get some of those mid-tier markets becoming real powerhouses really significant revenue generators and there's some real complexity and sophistication emerging in a lot of these markets with really big numbers <clears throat> but you have to caveat really big numbers because as I'll explain in just a moment about China, for example, <clears throat> a lot of what we see in the Chinese market is music-centric experiences rather than pure music experiences. But the key thing to take away from this, and with companies like Ngami in the Middle East, is a lot of indigenous companies are gearing their services <clears throat> towards the unique needs of their users. So when I said at the start about <clears throat> there's a choice between globalization um, internationalization of content or homo global homogeneity a lot of the emphasis is going to come from local services providing <coughs> locally centered um, experiences so last lap of this looking at the eastern markets the Asian market so this is just a selection of some of the some of the big um, Asian services maybe if there's one thing which unites all of these is a Spotify and Apple Music <coughs> is that turning on the tap, getting your music. These services are very different. They do that, too many of them, but they're essentially saying, how can we build music-centered experiences? And that can be lip-syncing, it can be karaoke, it can be um, gifting, giving um, special badges, a whole bunch of things which monetize fandom. And that's a crucial thing. It's the in some ways, streaming has taken the soul out of music. In the old world, <clears throat> 20 years ago, a teenager would have in their bedrooms rows of CDs and maybe DVDs and maybe games. And so when somebody walked into the bedroom, they knew exactly who they were. And when they said, oh, have you heard this album? Yeah, I've got that album. I've got that album and I went and spent money. It mattered that much to me. I went and bought the album. <coughs> so that has gone. You know, the idea of, yeah, I've listened to that album, it doesn't mean anything. Because there's no cost associated with it. Anybody can listen to an album, although fewer people are listening to albums. 
And so we've got a gap for how do people express themselves. And we know that teenagers want to express themselves because we've got Instagram, we've got Snapchat. It's digital peacocking, you know, that, that bird that spreads its big feathers and says, look at who I am. Some of these Asian services are recognising that you can build businesses around this. Uh, with two <coughs> Western examples, one is the Western adoption of Chinese app TikTok and before that musically, but also if you look at uh, Fortnite, Fortnite has generated huge amounts of <coughs> fandom generated income. It's done that by getting people to buy skins, <coughs> to buy dances. None of them improve the gameplay. It's just a way of saying who they are. And you get some really impressive metrics coming off this. Um, Tencent Music Entertainment, which is a spin-off from Tencent that floated in, in the New York Stock Exchange, it's positioned as a music service, but nearly three-quarters of its revenues don't come from music. It comes from live streaming and tipping and all of these other things. Now, you could say, well, yeah, these are Asian behaviours. They're not going to translate to the West. But I remember back when iMode, the first sort of mobile data service in Japan, started coming around, and all these new behaviours were being created. Everybody said, oh, it's different in Europe and America. People aren't going to spend the whole time sending pictures to each other and writing messages to each other. And sure enough, we did. Now, is it going to look just like this? No, of course it's not. But that principle of trying to build context and meaning around music is crucial. And the context is also really important for music discovery. Music discovery and curation are two of the most overused and misused words in the music market because music discovery isn't really happening the way it should. There's a really big difference between hearing a lot of music and discovering music. When we are streaming music consumers, so those people who spend the time streaming music, how they discover new music, streaming comes forth. It comes after hearing songs on TV shows. Because streaming playlists might push a lot of new music in front of a consumer, but if it's stripped of context, it doesn't actually lead to discovery. If you think about how you use your, your streaming app, most of the time your phone will be in your pocket, it'll be on the desk with the screen off, so it's going to have to be something that really jumps out at you to make you want to swipe, open, look at it, add to collection, or whatever else it might be. Back in the old world of radio, which still exists out there at scale, but is definitely diminishing, you had DJs who'd tell you what it was. You'd have repeats, so you'd hear the song again and again until you get familiarity with it. And so radio and YouTube are still the two main ways of discovering new music. So that's a gap which streaming has to fill, and this Fandom and context is one of the ways to drive towards that. And the last little bit, if you think this is, a lot of, again, if you're sceptical about these things translating to the West, just look at the success of BTS. You know, BTS is arguably more about the fandom than it is about the music itself. And just uh, two days ago, sold out Wembley in the UK. It's a huge, huge opportunity here to tap into fandom, particularly for younger users. We could end up seeing, and I spent way too long making this slide, but what we could end up seeing is West versus East, where a lot of these emerging markets and next tier markets haven't been tapped to any meaningful degree by the Western music services. We've heard ByteDance, the parent, of, uh, parent company of TikTok, talk about building a service that's probably going to be prioritizing emerging markets and may well be pushing a fandom first type proposition. So we could end up in a point where the West is going to really have to start taking lessons from the East. So, <clears throat> to conclude, 
A few points to ponder. We've got changing consumption habits. You know, I referenced before that, that slide about how people are using playlists and radio, etc. One of the things that is clear and arguably most disruptive about the shifts in behaviour is people are moving away from albums, which means they're moving away from artists too. Because if all that you're hearing is a succession of music of single tracks appearing in a playlist, you don't develop that same relationship with an artist that you used to. Back in the days of the iTunes music store, people buy an album and they spend time listening to it because they've invested the money in it. And listening and listening, you know, we all know those awkward listen albums that you know, sort of takes two or three listens and then bang, we get it. That just goes and goes in streaming because there's so much choice. The abundance of choice means you don't need to waste your time with an awkward listen. And this matters not just, you know, for any artists or managers in here. This isn't just about streaming. This impacts every part of an artist's income. We've already seen the, the impact of this in the live music sector. Why are festivals such a big deal? Because they're a playlist created as a live experience. People who go to festivals probably wouldn't go and see most of the bands. They like them all individually, but probably wouldn't go and shell out to go and get a ticket, but put them together in a live playlist, and it suddenly makes sense. That's great for festivals, but as an artist, as much as you can build really significant festival income, you want to have your tours as well. And so we might see it harder and harder for artists to generate big enough fan bases to be able to tour, which, when an artist is well established, can be the vast majority of their income. And if streaming does kill radio, where does that leave labels? Because radio is still really important for driving discovery. It's radio and YouTube. And as powerful a tool as YouTube is, and it's by far the most widely used music app on the planet, and over the last two years, music has become a dramatically bigger part of YouTube consumption, um, because YouTube is proactively driving it. But if radio goes, that leaves the labels entirely dependent on YouTube, which is, of course, something that they don't want. What's going to happen after revenue growth has peaked? And then the last thing I want to leave you with is competing the attention economy. The attention economy is everyone is competing against everyone. You're no longer just competing against other artists or other streaming services. This, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, three years ago said his biggest problem was competing against sleep. Last year, he said his biggest problem is competing against Fortnite. Everybody's competing with everyone. So, thank you very much. I've got about 10 seconds over. What I will do is a shameless plug for the media newsletter. If you're not already signed up, sign up. You get free analysis, data, research into your inbox every Monday. Thank you very much, everyone. This is Dimitri Vitsa, your host on Music Tectonics. Thanks for joining me for this special episode with Mark Mulligan from Media Research. He did the opening keynote at Meetem 2019 here in Cannes in France. I'm still on the beach, hoping to run back in and catch some more sessions. We're going to bring you more from Meetem very shortly. We're going to try to post some episodes more rapidly than normal. And uh, I've been interviewing some of the startups in the Meetem Lab competition including Endless, a very interesting uh, artist collaboration and creation tool. Uh, Paper Chain, an interesting fintech for the music industry uh, uh, app and uh, platform. And also talked to 
uh, big year games and we're doing more we have a bunch more interviews lined up this week so make sure to hit the subscribe button so if you're not at meetem and you're having a little bit of fomo you can still listen to some of what i've learned while i'm here so hit the subscribe button and sign up for our newsletter at musictectonics.com to get updates You're listening to Music Tectonics.